in your copy this evening of God's Word, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now let me do a little bit of preparatory work. I mentioned this to you very briefly last week. But 2 Samuel ends with the story that is found in 1 Chronicles 21. So 2 Samuel ends. And the very next book, as we have it in our Bibles, would be 1 Kings. Well, 1 Kings opens up with David literally in his deathbed. And we'll get there, but before we do so, when we turn to Chronicles, to the book of Chronicles, we find, I believe, some major, in fact, one significant major event, which is what we're going to primarily talk about over the next few Sunday nights. There are some events recorded for us in Chronicles about the life of David that's not found anywhere else. It's not in 2 Samuel. It's not in 1 Kings. The only record of it we have is right here in 1 Chronicles. Now, candidly, 1 Chronicles is one of those books that when we're reading through our Bibles, I hope we are reading through our Bibles each year and we get to 1 Chronicles, not to be disrespectful, but there's just some tough or sledding there. There really is. The first 10 chapters are genealogies. I like what my good friend, Pastor Jack Holbrook, said. He said, when I get to all them begats and begats, I want to be gone. <laughs> I understand what he means by that. And so <clears throat> Chronicles opens up with a history of humanity, then it transitions to a history of the 12 tribes, a genealogical history of the 12 tribes. And then there is an incredibly short mention of the reign of King Saul. But beginning about 1 Chronicles chapter 11, we pick up with the life of David. Much of that mirrors things that we've already studied in 2 Samuel. That is, up until you get to the close of 1 Chronicles 21. And from 1 Chronicles 22 through 29, there are specific details that are given to us that, we're not, that are not found in Samuel or Kings. And since we're following the life of David, I'm not going to do an exposition of Chronicles, but what I would like to do is to pull out some of these events. And primarily, here's the giveaway, the construction of the temple, really the preparatory work for the construction of the temple. That's what we're going to focus on the next few Sunday evenings before we go back to 1 Kings to where David is near his death. And there will be some overlap from a few of the things mentioned in these last few chapters of Chronicles to what we'll study in, in 1 Kings, but not that much. So I'm interested in gleaning what we can from the life of David. If I just follow chronologically 
from 2 Samuel into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we would miss this. And I think if we missed this, we'd be missing a chunk, a massive, major life event in the kingship of David. And so I want us to think about, in really chapter 22 through 29, the, the remainder of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, focuses around David's preparatory work for the construction of the temple. That's what it's about. And that's what we're going to look at beginning tonight and then as our way through. And there's some tough sledding in the latter part of this with the list of priests and singers. And we'll, we'll, my goal is to try to simplify that as much as we can and glean what we can from it as well, all right? In First Chronicles 21, remember 2 Samuel closes David's sinful census. He had taken a census of the people, really, I think, to fuel his own pride. God says through through the prophet Gad, he sends word to David, take your option. You got three things, this, this, or this. And David takes option three, which is sudden swift destruction. God sends an angel of death over Israel. Large chunk of that military dies. I'm trying to remember. I want to say 40,000 men, but you'd have to go back and confirm that. But a large chunk of men die due to David's sin, really Israel's sin as well, because God was angry with them. But remember this. David sees this angel of death hovering over Jerusalem, sword in hand about to bring destruction on the capital city itself. Not only from Dan to Beersheba, but over the capital itself. And God relents. God's heart, as it were, is softened. And tells that angel to stop. God sends Gad, the prophet Gad, to, to David and says, Go build an altar. Make sacrifice. Make atonement. And that's what the king did. He went, made, built an altar, made atonement, and God's anger was satisfied. And it is right there where we're picking up. We're picking up where that angel of death stops. And it is noteworthy. It is beyond noteworthy. This is something you should write down, underline, underscore, if you're interested in, in holding on to this. This transpires at the threshing floor of Ornon or Aranu, same person, different names in Samuel and Chronicles. David builds that altar, makes that sacrifice at the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And this is the significance. If you remember from week before last when we talked about this, this particular threshing floor sits just north of the city of David, literally on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, where Abraham brought Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice. This will be, this property, that piece of land, 
will be the future home of the temple proper. The temple itself. Okay? That's very, very, very important in Old Testament history. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we find David there purchasing this property. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 25. So David gave to Ornon for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon Yahweh, called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire. This is God's approval of the, of the atoning sacrifice, answering by fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, the tent of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness in the altar of the burnt offering, they were miles away, were at that season in the high place of Gibeon. There was no altar there. It was in Gibeon. David constructs an altar. But verse 30 says, But David could not go before it, that is to the altar at Gideon, to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, This is the house of Yahweh God. And I, I, my Bible translation, I'm reading this here, every time where you see the Lord in, in your Old Testament, in that all caps, it translates it as Yahweh. So, my mind is somewhat trained that way. This is the house of Yahweh God, the Lord God. And this is the altar, the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he sent masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And he prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians. And they of Tyre brought much cedar to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord. And I just love this. If you don't like this King James language, I don't know what to do with you. Listen, the house that is to be builded for Yahweh must be exceeding magnificent. Isn't that beautiful language? That's some old, uh, old, high, old high English language. Exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. I'm speaking tonight on the king making preparation. You'll notice that at the close of verse 5, the repetition of that. I will make preparation for the temple. So David prepared abundantly for before his death. I want to iron out a couple of things. One that I've already mentioned is you need to get familiar with this piece of property where Ornon the Jebusite had his threshing floor. I implore you. I encourage you. I exhort you. 
the Bible you bring to church may not be this, but you need to have a good study Bible. You need to have a Bible in it that's got some pictures like this in it. I know you can't see that from here, but right here in my Bible paints it so pretty. There is the city of David. At the northern end of the city of David, there's David's palace. And you just need to envision David standing on his palace rooftop. Many years earlier, sees Bathsheba bathing below. This time he looks north. He looks upward and he sees that angel, sword in hand, hovering over the city. And if you have you a good study Bible that's got some of that in it, I use a Holman Christian study Bible. It's got this in there, and then you can just visualize that. And it just, at least it helps me to see that. And there is this angel of death hovering over, about to bring swift death. When God relents, David builds an altar to make sacrifice. But to do so, he needs the materials to build an altar, and he needs animals to sacrifice. And if you'll remember... When the king comes to Ornon, he says to Ornon, that Ornon says to the, to the king, he says, why are you the king of all Israel? Why have you come to see me? And David responds, because we need to build an altar. I've been told by the prophet Gad to construct an altar and make atonement. And I'd like to purchase your property to do so. And so David and, of course, Ornon says, man, you can have it for free. And you remember what David responds, I want to offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. I'm going to pay, you know, a true sacrifice requires sacrifice. I'm going to pay whatever price you deem right for, for the oxen, the wood, the stones, those things to, to build the altar. But I want to work out what may seem something of a contradiction unless you study a little bit more. Now, you can turn back there or you can just trust me, but in 2 Samuel 24, where we were at, verse 24, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, it says that David purchased the threshing floor of Aranu the Jebusite, or not, for 50 shekels of silver. That is, he purchased the threshing floor itself. Now understand, there was a, la a large piece of land, and on that land, there was field, there was, you know, there was different things, but on that land, there was a high point on which Ornon had put his threshing floor, so the wind would blow by and carry the chaff away. This 50 shekels of silver David purchases that immediate property there where the threshing floor is and pays for the oxen and actually the text makes reference to the yoke that were on the oxen and the threshing instruments that could be used for wood to burn the altar. Okay? And here's why that matters. If you look at verse 25 in our text in 1 Chronicles 21... It says David gave to Ornon for the place 600 shekels of gold, by the way. So in 2 Samuel 24, 24, it says that David paid 50 shekels of silver. In our text, it says that David paid 600 shekels of gold. 
And of course, a Bible critic will run and say, you see there, you can't trust the Bible. It's not trustworthy. It's got contradictions and inconsistencies. That's not the case. That lower price, that 50 shekels of silver in today's dollars would be roughly $1,000. $1,000. And that's what David paid or Aranu. That's what he paid him for the oxen and the threshing instruments and for that immediate little tiny piece of land where the threshing floor was. However, in our text, David purchases the whole lot, the whole property, not just the animals and the wood and that immediate little piece of land, but he purchases a, a vast piece of property big enough for the temple to be built upon. And that 600 shekels of gold that we read about includes the entire field, the threshing floor, a large parcel of land, and in today's dollars, 600 shekels is pretty much the equivalent of $360,000. So understand that was a significant land purchase by David. There's not an inconsistency. There's not, it's wrong in one place. It is a little bit of careful study, a little bit of reading, a little bit of thought. You can see one price for this, much larger price for that. So item number one, I've got just two things tonight, the purchase of the property, the purchase of the property, and then number two will be the gathering of material and men, the gathering of material and men. So the purchase of the property, number one, is at Mount Moriah, the threshing floor of Aranu. David purchases this and builds an altar there. We read that in our text. David builds an altar. The tabernacle is nowhere near. It's in Gibeon. David builds an altar, makes sacrifice. God sends fire from heaven down upon the sacrifice, thereby signifying his approval of that worship location. This place, the threshing floor of Aranu, becomes the property on which the temple will be built. Now, I've, I try not to sound like I'm boasting because I'm not. It, it all happened by God's grace and, and Frank Shelton's generosity in this church as well. I've had the opportunity to stand on the Mount of Olives, look at the city of David, and then look just north of it where the, where the temple proper should be. Of course, there's a golden mosque sitting there now in the place where the temple should be. But I've had the very privilege of walking in the area that they allow you to walk where the weeping wall is on the south side, which is really no more than the foundation of the temple. And it is astounding. I could show you more pictures than you'd want to look at, at the vast, I'm talking uh, stones that are literally from me to that wall and just this high, I don't know how many hundreds of tons those stones would have weighed. Don't know how they moved them, but all of that was built right here on that piece of property that David purchased. The foundation of the temple and then the temple itself. And it wouldn't hurt you to, to do a little bit of legwork, a little bit of homework, and look at... Um, 
you know, Google or whatever else, a good Bible, a study Bible, to see the temple during Solomon's time, what it would have looked like. And we're going to talk more about that, so it wouldn't hurt you at all to get the, to do a little digging. But to see the temple, the temple mound, the foundation of the temple, it's, it's astounding. It's simply astounding what was accomplished. Now, don't forget, don't forget, it's been a minute. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David said, I live in a house of cedar. I live in a palace, and God dwells in a tent. I want to build a house for the Lord. And that was his burden. That was his desire, to build this massive, beautiful temple for God. But you remember, the prophet said, man, have at it. Do whatever you want. But neither one of them consulted the Lord in that matter. And God says to David, I'm sorry, you are not allowed to build the temple. You are a man of war. You shed too much blood. And in fact, it will be your son, whose name is Solomon. Anybody know what Solomon's, what that name means? It's very akin to shalom, which means peace. Your son, who will be a man of peace, will build a temple of peace. But nonetheless, uh, David isn't permitted to build the temple. That's his heart. That's his desire. That's what he wants to do. But God forbids it. In fact, God says, your son, Solomon, will build the temple. You won't. Um, you can look at that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. But there's something I want you to notice. And it is that even though God did not permit David to build the temple... Two things. One, God was pleased with David's desire to do so. And two, God allowed David to gather the material for the construction of the temple. In fact, if you don't mind, turn over to 2 Chronicles in chapter number 6. It'll be just a few pages over in your Bible to 2 Chronicles in chapter number 6. Here Solomon is speaking. Solomon, David's son, who will be the king in David's, uh, following David's death and who will construct the temple itself. Notice what Solomon says in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 7, verse 7. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of Yahweh, God of Israel. But the Lord, but Yahweh said to David, my father, for as much as it was in thine heart to build a house for my name, thou didst well. It was good that it was in your heart. That was a good thing that it was in your heart. But verse 9 says, notwithstanding, God says to David, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, which shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house for my name. So I want you to take notice of that. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. That was his heart's desire. But God was still pleased with David's desire to do that. Even though he didn't allow him to do it, we read there that God was pleased with the fact that that was David's yearning. And God will bless David's efforts 
as he begins to amass the materials that will be necessary for the construction of the temple. So you have the purchase of the property. In fact, in 22, back in our text, if you don't mind, chapter 22, verse 1, then David said, this is the house of Yahweh God. This is the altar for the burnt offering. And I'd like you to understand that, that David is saying, this is the place. Chapter 22, verse 1, this is the place for the house of Yahweh God. God having sent down fire from heaven, marking approval on that location, David understood that to mean God would be God would accept that as a place of atonement, a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place of prayer at the threshing floor of Arana. So David purchases the whole huge property for a large sum of money. So that is the, and really, I, you, verse 1, I'm not twisting the text. Just you read and study this. This is the place for the house of Yahweh God. This is the place for the altar. There will be a permanent altar there. Well, permanent as far as the temple is concerned when it's built. Then notice with me, secondly, the gathering of materials and men. We find that in chapter 22, verses 2 through 5. I read it. In verse number 2, David begins to organize stonemasons and stone cutters. In fact, the, the language here is he begins to gather together the strangers. Well, what does that mean? It means non-Israelites. Those who were still living in Canaan, the promised land, but were not Jews. They were strangers, um, foreigners, uh, and we don't like, I don't, I say we, a lot of people don't like this language, but illegal aliens, to some degree, that's what this is. You have a Jewish state, you have people who are living there, they're not Jews, they're strangers, they're foreigners. And so David employs them, and that's a polite way of saying he enslaves them to become, to cut out. And there's a lot of speculation, again, as we were there at the Temple Mount looking at those massive, massive stones um, that, are, that serve as the foundation of the Temple, that, that, Tal that Solomon will have those massive stones that will be cut out and moved. They, you understand, they didn't have giant earth-moving equipment like we have today. I mean, they didn't have bobcats and backhoes, or bobcats and backhoes and all of those things like we have today. It is, I don't even, I don't even know how. We think we're smart. We're not Solomon smart. That he was able to move those massive granite stones like he did um, huge rocks, but David begins to organize uh, these foreigners and assigns them positions as stone cutters, stone masons, those who would move, push, pull, put put logs down on which they would roll the stones, maybe. I, I don't know. However they did it, but nonetheless. And then in verse 3, David accumulates iron and brass 
You see that in verse number three, prepared iron in abundance for the nails, uh, for the gates, the joinings of brass also in abundance. And verse four, uh, timber. He begins to amass timber material. And men, he, he amasses cedar trees uh, for their strength, for their beauty. I, I'm old school for their smell. <laughs> I, I love the way cedar smells, but he amasses cedar trees in abundance. Uh, and he purchases them uh, from Tyre of Sidon. You go on and, and look more into that. Verses 15 and 16, we didn't read them, but if you were to look at them, verse 15, he amasses uh, workmen in abundance, hewers and workers of stone, timber, cunning men. So he got carpenters. And I think more than that, God gifted certain men. We're going to talk about that more in the future. God gifted certain people with artistic ability who could engrave gold in this, this immaculate, beautiful way. And David began to search over his kingdom, but not only his kingdom, but other kingdoms, to find those who were gifted in that way. Um, there, there are some people, I, I, I simply don't know how they're so artistically gifted, the things that they can do. Uh, Nathan Kersey comes to mind. I see some of his paintings on Facebook. I, he is so gifted to draw or to paint. In like manner, God gifted certain individuals and David searches the known world to find them because he wants to build this immaculate kingdom, I'm sorry, this immaculate temple, though he won't do it. He's getting everything together so his son Solomon can do it. Craftsman, I think would be a good word to understand. He, he gathers skilled workers, carpenters, artists, really, I think, more uh, more accurately. And then in verse 16, gold, silver, brass, iron, there's no number. I'm going to talk about the dollar figures, about that a little bit more later. But remember this. The author of Chronicles includes these details that are not found anywhere else in the Bible. This is not thrown in haphazardly. This is thrown in to get our minds to thinking about how serious David took the privilege of making preparation for the temple. David, so sincere in his efforts to see Yahweh God honored through the building of that Magnifico temple. In fact, if you look at verse number 5, he says, my son Solomon, he's still a young fellow. He's not ready for this kind of a task. This will be too much for him. I'm going to do everything I can do to get things ready for him. And that's going to include some design plans for the temple, amassing not just gold and silver and craftsmen and, and stone masons, but you get on over in the chapter around verse 17, 18, 19, David tells the leaders of Israel, you get behind this project too. You support it. This is a, don't miss, this is a massive transition in Old Testament history. They're going from a tabernacle to a temple, from a tent 
to this immaculate building. And David, the launching point of this is David's heart to honor his God. And the author includes these details that we would stop and think on the heart of the king to see his God glorified in this magnificent way. Now I want to to remind you of something. And I'll probably do this again because this is imperative. When you begin talking about the gold and the silver that was amassed, it is it is astounding. And I I'm saving that little nugget for later, alright? But the real, hear this, the real beauty of the temple is not the cedar, it's not the gold. It's not the engraving. The real beauty of the temple is the presence of Yahweh God. That's the beauty of the temple. David can amass things. Solomon can build things. But all of it is vain unless the, and I I think we can say the Spirit of God indwells that temple. Which I think is actually what happens. Well, preacher, you've gone a long way, so let's talk about a couple more things, all right? It's always my goal when I'm preaching to not just relate information to you, but to try and draw application from what we've learned. And then more than that, I also want to look at it through New Testament eyes. How does this preparatory work of David How does that point us to the finished work of Christ? Where do we see the gospel in this? So I'm interested in two more things with you this evening in application and gospel-centeredness. And that is I want to take a lesson from David. And then secondly, I want to take a lesson about worship. A lesson from David and a lesson about worship. In the, in this narrative, in the account that is given to us, we can easily see David's heart. We can see his heart. And his heart was for Yahweh God to be honored above all gods. He wanted to build a temple that would rival and would rival any that had ever been built or would be built. And though he won't build it himself, he's getting everything together so that it can be built. So we see David, don't forget, a shepherd revealing his shepherd's heart because he he wants God's sheep, the nation of Israel, To follow hard after the one true God. That's what he wants. He wants this temple to be built and glorious so that Israel would worship the one true God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is a shepherd concerned for the sheep. He is jealous over God's glory. He is jealous over Israel. And he wants 
Israel to invest themselves in worshiping and sacrificing at this temple to magnify the name of the one true and living God. Yes, David was denied the privilege of building the temple, but listen to this lesson. David didn't sulk. You know, he could have gotten sour. He could have said, God's not going to let me build the temple. Fooey on the whole thing. Just forget it. But that's not what he does. His heart, his gentle heart, is to see his God glorified. And if I can't build the temple, at least I can get stuff ready so that when the time comes, my son can build this temple. Even though God did not give him his immediate desire, he didn't just throw his hands up and say, forget it. He didn't say, I'll never see the temple, so why even bother? I, 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 preachers are prone to get ahead of themselves, but I, maybe if I throw this at you, you'll chew on it for a little bit. There's something to be said here for the contrast, and we'll get more into this moving forward. David handing things over to Solomon there's an incredible contrast there between Moses handing things over to Joshua. And there is a very, I think, very intentional contrast to be made in that. And you might remember what was Moses' great desire to set his foot in the land of Canaan, yet God said, no, you can't. And here we see David's great desire is to build a temple, and God says, no, you can't. What, what can we glean from that? Not only that David didn't sour, that David didn't sulk, but his heart was overburdened to see his, his God glorified. Or, let me say it like this, the king didn't coast through his golden years on ivory clouds of ease. You realize we don't have any understanding how wealthy David was. Believe me, no concept. David was so rich, he'd make Bill Gates look like he lived in a poorhouse. That's just a fact. Had he had anything that the that earth itself could afford was at his disposal. Let me be a little bit silly. David could have spent the remainder of his years on an island somewhere drinking, you know, them little drinks that's got umbrellas in them. He could have been on endless cruises. He could have been lead, leading an easy, simple life. But instead, in his golden years, he said, I'm going to do what I can do to encourage my son and God's sheep to devote themselves to following hard after and worshiping the one true God. There is an exhortation for us that even in our golden years, we don't hit the cruise button, but we keep doing what we can do to encourage others to commit themselves, even when our hairs have grayed, even when we can't do what we once could. We can do what we can. And that's what David did. 
He made preparation for this temple. And so should we do what we can do to encourage that next generation. Prepare in whatever way we can prepare. That this next generation that would come would commit themselves fully to following hard after the one true God and worshiping Him with all of their soul and strength. David remained committed to honoring Yahweh God. It would have been so easy for him to just ride out the rest of his days. But he was concerned about God's glory and the good of his people. David could not force Solomon to build the temple. He could only counsel him to do it. David could not force the people to put a high priority on worship. He could only encourage them, but he did what he could. David yearns that his God would be honored and adored, praised and worshipped. And so he gathers and prepares for this wonderful temple that is to be built. And then secondly, this lesson about worship. And this is where we'll make, a, I hope, a gospel connection. We've seen David's desire, David's design, that God would be worshipped, that God would be magnified through this magnificent uh, temple. David understands that this will be the God-appointed place of sacrifice. And so he does what he can. He does what he can to, to prepare. But what lesson can we learn from that? And it's this, and I hope that I'm handling this well, is that this temple that would be built would become the God-approved place of sacrifice and worship until Christ would come, until Messiah would come. Now, that old covenant is finished. We don't go to a temple built with hands in Jerusalem. We don't have to go to the threshing floor of Aranu the Jebusite. That old, co that old covenant is finished and the new covenant has begun. Now we do not go to, don't confuse my language with talking about church, I don't mean that, follow me. Now we are not required to go to a temple in Jerusalem, but now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. We don't have to go to some earthly building to make animal sacrifices. But now God's Spirit dwells within us and we are the dwelling place. We, according to Scripture, are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, by any account, that temple was beyond gorgeous. Our temples may not be. Our temples may be much unlike Solomon's temple, David slash Solomon's temple. We get David partial credit for that. Certainly not covered in gold, not, as far as the world is concerned, not immense value. 
But brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God dwells within every Christian. And as such, in God's sight, we have infinite value. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And it matters really little how much we beautify our exteriors if our hearts are impure. I'm thinking as we gather for worship. What lesson about worship? David's desire is to see Israel worship. It matters very little how much we beautify our exteriors, our bodies, if our hearts are filled with darkness, with sin. As David prepared the temple for worship, we ought to prepare our temples for worship. I'm a firm believer, and this will be about as popular as a red hat at a Biden rally. I'm just, I'm convinced that Sunday worship is a Saturday night decision. Sunday worship is a Saturday night decision. I don't know why on earth we would tell ourselves we could stay up all night Saturday night and walk into God's house filled with hearts yearning for worship. Not so. As David prepared that temple to be a place of worship, I'm not so concerned about us putting on makeup and suits and clothes. That's all well and good. But have we prepared our hearts for worship? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Have we prepared ourselves to worship? The ancient Israelites would never, never, they would never enter into that temple as flippantly as we enter into worship. This magnificent building that David is preparing for and that Solomon would build, it took planning and it took preparation. It wasn't haphazardly done. It wasn't thrown together at the last minute. In the same vein, our worship demands, true God-honoring worship demands us preparing our hearts to meet with our God. So brothers and sisters, give some thought to following the example of David in preparing your heart to worship as you are the temple of God. I hope you've learned something this evening from this passage. I hope that we've been challenged by it. And I hope that I've handled it well. This is not the easiest not the easiest section to study, but I am already been blessed by it, and I hope that you will be blessed by it as well. And we're going to follow along in this chronicle narrative over the life of David. God bless you. I hope that you have a good evening and a good week, and Lord willing, I will see you on Wednesday night. All right? God bless you. All right. Uh, Aaron, my young friend, will you dismiss this one?